This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're starting and finishing the epic cattle raid of Cooley from Irish Legend. You'll learn which piece of fruit is the deadliest piece of fruit, and how a hug from a legendary warrior might just be a way too effective cure for constipation. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a horrible hairy little zombie who you can make to torment your enemies, or just do some light housework. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 22C, The Spoils of War. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore that have shaped our world. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Previously on the podcast, there was a king in Ulster, in Ireland, named Cahur. Ulster had a fantastic brown bull. In a separate kingdom, Queen Maeve and King Leo were arguing about how rich they were. Things escalated, and soon the king and queen were invading Ulster to get their brown bull so that Maeve's riches could match her husband's, who had a majestic white bull. Because of a curse long ago, though, all the men in Ulster were incapacitated and experiencing the pain of labor. Also, in another story, a warrior and former king named Fergus McRoach chose exile after an Ulsterman under the command of King Gorhor killed his son. Also, 18 years ago, a young boy was born, and he grew up to basically be the best warrior ever. He completed several labors, and for some reason, he was not under the curse that the other Ulstermen were. After the war started, he was the only one who could take off to confront the armies of Maeve, Aleel, and Fergus. Maeve saw the four warriors, whose heads Kukulun left on spikes in the river. She thought about it, and there was no need to send the whole army after him. She called up one young man, named Freik. He was a powerful young warrior, likely close in age to this Kukulun. Kukulun has just taken these four unaware, and he might just fall to this young man, and their path to the brown bull would be clear. The young man named Freik padded around trees, looking for Kukulun, and eventually he saw the young man bathing in the river. Preferring a straight fight to all the sneaking around and thinking Kukulun wasn't good in the water, though he really was really good in the water, he jumped out and challenged the hero to a grappling match and lost. Quickly. Kukulun pulled him up and asked if he would be permitted to spare Freik, to which Freik replied that he wouldn't have that said. So Kukulun drowned him in the river. It continued, where big warriors of renown would get it in their head that they would get this little 17-year-old and go off after him, only to be killed by him. Eventually, Kukulun decided to take up slinging stones, as a hobby, I guess, and he started raining stones down on the camp. Maeve had a pet squirrel that sat on her shoulder who was killed by a just slightly off stone from Kukulun's sling, and Aleel had a pet bird that was killed the same way. Soon, Kukulun was hitting the army constantly in guerrilla warfare. Maeve wouldn't go anywhere without a mobile shield wall around her, because it seemed like they were always in range of his stones. The army pushed on, with all haste, towards where they thought the brown bull was being kept. Except Dung Kalinga, the bull, that's his name, was visited by the Morrigan, a goddess I'll talk about later. She's kind of like a goddess of death in Irish mythology, and most often travels in the form of a crow. She delights in strife and battle, and in some places she's the sister of Maka, the goddess who cursed Ulster with the birth pangs. She went to the brown bull and told him of the army coming to capture him. He fled with his heifers and his herdsmen, some kids, 150 actually, who liked to play on his usually permitting back, came to play the next day. And he threw them around, killing 50 of them. Because apparently there's not enough death in the story. 
Maeve's army arrived and saw that the bull wasn't there, so they broke up the main army into smaller raiding groups to go look for it. Fergus and Maeve agree to go together, and Aaliyah will lead the other arm. Hmm, Aaliyah thinks. So she doesn't want to go with her husband and leave the very capable Fergus to lead his own army. Something's up here. His very correct suspicions were confirmed when he sent the charioteer to spy on them. The charioteer found them in Maeve's tent. Together, for obvious reasons, they did not notice the boy steal Fergus' sword. A little thought on this, and remember, Maeve loves him so much because he's not jealous. He actually completely understands Fergus needed to stay loyal to them as he raids the land he used to rule. Remember, Cuchulain is Fergus's foster son, and the man might be forced to face him in combat. Maeve was just ensuring his continued personal interest in the affairs of their kingdom in a way that only she can. Still, Alil had Fergus's sword, and he ordered the charioteer to hide it away. Later, they entered into a board game in a battle of wits, where Fergus was put in his place by Alil, despite what just happened. They traveled on until they came to a ford, and they saw the young Cuchulain standing on the other side with his charioteer, named Leg. Queen Maeve smiled, and some warriors ran to attack, and are killed. More warriors attack, and more are killed. Soon they just stopped sending men to Cuchulain. They were at a bit of an impasse, and an Ulster exile rode out to talk to Cuchulain, who vowed to hold the ford and rain down slingstones on them. If this exile, Fergus, and other friends would dress differently, in some way than the groups, their heads wouldn't explode from the slingstones. Aliel and his men tried to fall in with Fergus, but Cuchulain picked them out, literally, and killed 30 of them over the next month. And yeah, month. Like most things in folklore, the details aren't amazingly consistent. The labor pangs that are only supposed to last a few days, which, for labor that's still an insanely long time, end up lasting months. No explanation is given at all. Every once in a while, people say something like, the Ulstermen will be out of their pangs soon, or, wow, the Ulstermen are sure taking a long time recovering from their pangs, but it's never really addressed. The army pushed along a different route, and the Slingstones were a daily, constant problem, with hundreds of men dying over the next few days. Eventually, the armies ended up in a fort, and Maeve is worried. This kid with his guerrilla tactics will destroy her army bit by bit before they even have a chance to get to the bull. This is no good. She proposes a deal. consents to serve her, he will get a whole plane, a lot of servants, the best charioteers, etc, etc. Basically, many, many riches. McGroth goes to make the deal. Unsurprisingly, Cuchulain was unwilling to sell out his uncle for money, but McGroth really tried. He offered Cuchulain cows and bondswomen to just stop slinging stones at them at night. By day, you can kill as many people as you please. Just please let us get some sleep. They eventually came to an agreement where... Okay, Cuchulain will stop slinging stones at them at night so they can get some sleep, but every day someone needed to face him in single combat in the ford. This way Cuchulain only needed to worry about one fighter at a time, and Queen Maeve and friends would only lose one warrior day to Cuchulain. Presumably other raiding parties were scouring Ulster looking for the bull. The single combat starts up, and as you can probably imagine, none of the normal soldiers can really handle Cuchulain. And so day after day... He fought people at the ford, and each day the army lost one more man. They ranged from death by pretty normal sword to one guy getting an apple thrown through his head. I'm mostly going to gloss over the single combat, but there's one in particular that I found pretty funny. A legendary warrior came at the promise of marrying Mev and Leel's daughter, Finnebar, and he saw Cuchulain in a field beyond the ford, catching birds. 
Kukulm was so focused that he didn't even notice the man. He didn't even notice when the man was flinging javelins at him. Instead of running or fighting, Kukulm remained focused on the birds. The birds flew higher, so Kukulm jumped on the javelins in flight, using them as a stairway and jumping from one to the other to keep after the birds. I was an English major, so I didn't study a lot of physics, but I think this might be slightly impossible. I don't know, though. The legendary warrior was out of weapons, though, and left. The next day, he came back to challenge Kukulin in single combat, but refused to fight him because Kukulin didn't have a beard. Kukulin had his charioteer make a beard for him, and he ran out, pretending that the beardless Kukulin was just a servant. The warrior bought the fake beard, and they started fighting. They threw javelins at one another, and Kukulin's vertical leap was so good that he dodges it. The warrior's vertical leap was less than great, and he ended up with a javelin stuck in his head. He was somehow still alive, but he knew that if the javelin came out, he was a dead man. He consented to come back and be beheaded by Kukulin, but his 24 sons are back at camp, and really, they have to see this. Kukulin says, yeah, absolutely, and lets him leave because this is really cool. Everyone was amazed, and the warrior did come back the next day, though he didn't just submit to Kukulin. He tried to fight. Once again, it did not go well for him, what with a javelin in his head, and he was cut into quarters by Kukulin. One by one, more warriors went up against Kukulin, and one by one, they died. Only one survived, when Kukulin sprung up at him unarmed and shook him. He shook him so hard that he literally shook the crap out of him. It said that the river grew foul with his droppings. He lived, but he was incontinent and had horrible chest pains from that day forward. One day, a beautiful young woman came to Kukulin at the ford and offered herself to him. He said that he wasn't out here for that, but to defend his people. She said that maybe she could help, and he said, Yeah, you can help by leaving. I'm fighting someone to the death every day. She said, Hmm, well, if I can't help, maybe I can hurt. She said that she would do a number of curses on him. One time in a fight, she would slide up as an eel and trip him up. He said that he would crush her ribs if she did that. She said that another time she would turn into a wolf and drive a stampede out of the forest over him. He said that he would hit one of her eyes out. For the last thing, she'll also turn into a white cow and cause another stampede. I guess she ran out of ideas. So, I've had some requests to talk about the Morrigan. And that's this person again. She's the one that warned the brown bull so that he was harder to find, and so the war would be prolonged. It was honestly a little difficult to piece together a good profile of her. First, I was surprised and a little amused that she's referred to as the Morrigan, and not just Morrigan. And I found that her name, in Irish, means great queen. So we're just saying the great queen. In most places, she's kind of a goddess of death, though not really like Hades of Greek mythology or Hell of Norse. But she's more like a Valkyrie. She can come and affect the battle, but more often than not, she'll just show up as an old lady, a beautiful young woman, or a crow, and either threaten violence herself, or just tell you all the horrible things that are about to happen to you. She likes to show up and cause trouble, like Odin, so that explains why she helped the brown bull run off and hide. Anyway, she ended up doing all those things she threatened to Kukulin, and Kukulin crushed her ribs, took out one of her eyes when she was a wolf, and broke her legs when she was a cow. He told her the only way she can be healed of these marks is with his blessing, and he was not giving it. Later, after he was able to defeat his opponent, he was walking back, extremely tired, what with fighting two stampedes, an eel, and a person. He sees an old woman laboring to breathe with broken legs and one eye, milking a cow with three udders. I wonder who this old lady could be. 
Kukulin, not questioning why this old woman is milking a cow in the middle of a war zone, begs her for some milk. And she gave him three glasses. After each one, he blessed the good health of the giver and inadvertently healed her of her ailments. He curses when she reveals herself, saying that if he had known it was her, he never would have healed her. She said, essentially, yeah, well, you did, and leaves. Queen Maeve then started to come to her senses a bit and try to be treacherous, or at least use her overwhelming numerical advantage. The ancients probably wouldn't have seen it this way, but to me, it's pure folly to send one man after another when the warriors of Ulster could come any day to defend themselves. Seeing as her army was so massive, time for her was her most valuable asset here, and she was squandering it day by day. She sent groups to fight him, instead of just one, but of course, they died. Though, after fighting groups as large as 100 men, Cuchulain started to droop a bit. He was bloodied and weary and torn up, but he kept fighting. Then, one day, he saw someone walking calmly from the enemy camp. The man came close, and he was not dressed in armor, but silk. Cuchulain demanded to know who he was, and the well-dressed stranger looked at Cuchulain with piercing eyes and said, Cuchulain, I am your father. As it turns out, this was the god Lug, and apparently the actual father of Cuchulain, though let's not get too bogged down in the details, because, at least to me, it doesn't really make sense. He told Cuchulain that he had been watching him, and he must sleep and heal. He would die if he didn't. He, Lug, would hold the ford. Before Cuchulain could protest, Lug put him to sleep and healed him of all his injuries. He slept for three days and three nights straight, because... According to some reckonings, he has stayed up for months straight at this point. He woke up feeling amazing. He sprung up, and then he remembered. The war. He had let three days pass without killing anyone. That's not quite true, said a warrior who was on the Ulster side, and who just pops in to dump some exposition on us, and then leaves as quickly as he shows up. He said, the boy troops, the ones who practiced outside of Imaka, they came... 150 of them came when they heard of you and the attacking army. They're dead. They attacked Maeve's army, and they were all killed. The children ended up killing 150 warriors from Maeve's side, but even King Kruhur's son died in the fighting. The warrior then leaves, and no explanation is given as to who he is, or why he isn't helping. And, yeah, that's apparently Lug's way of guarding the ford. Getting a bunch of children killed. Kukulin called a leg, his chariot driver. He needed his chariot. Now. What follows is several pages of description of just how deadly he made this chariot. He covered literally every inch of it in barbs and spears. It was dangerous from every angle. Every spot of it was called a tearing place, which is a pretty good description. The horses were armored and barbed and weaponized, and finally it came to Kukulin. After he picked out eight swords, eight javelins, and several other things, he felt a change coming on. That's right, his warp spasm. He was hulking out. See the description in the last episode for just how weird this can be. Okay, so the armies of Maves and the others are gathered in a field for some reason, and Kukulin rides out. Now, think about fighting the Incredible Hulk. And then think about a Hulk who's armored to the teeth, has weapons, and knows how to use them. Oh, and he's also riding an inescapable death machine and wearing a cloak of concealment that he got from his magical dad. Because why not? 
Gukulin rode out there in his monster form and just completely destroyed everyone he touched. He killed 100, then 200, then 400, and finally people just stopped counting at 500 deaths. It was a complete and utter slaughter as revenge for the boy troops. It's remembered as one of the three uncountable battles of the Toyn because the true number of dead are, quote, unknowable. He rode back unscathed and transformed back into a handsome teenager. Now, Kukulin, while not too vain, felt like the monster's form didn't do him justice. The next day, while the army from Connacht was burying so many dead, he decided to go show himself on a mountain. And, like I said, he was very good looking. He was so wonderful that he has four dimples on each cheek, seven pupils in each eye, and seven fingers on each hand. Oh, and seven toes in each foot, too. So good looking. It's said that the women in the camp are clamoring up their men so that they can get a good look at him. Okay, so maybe you've noticed that we're kind of stalling out here. No one's making a big move, and I personally feel like the story is meandering a bit. Finally, after a fight between Fergus, Maeve, and Aleel, Maeve demanded that Fergus actually did something and challenged Kukulin. He said absolutely not. She gets him very drunk, and he changes his answer to just absolutely. Remember that Aleel still had his sword, though, so he went out there with a wooden one in his scabbard, just for show. He talked to the boy he helped raise, and Kukulin said that he can't fight with a wooden sword. He said he didn't need to fight, and asked the boy to yield. He said that the wooden sword would do him just as much good as a real one. He wouldn't fight Kukulin anyway. Kukulin was his foster son. Now yield. Kukulin smiled. Okay, I'll yield now, but you must yield to me the next time we meet in battle. He smiled back and clasped his hand on the boy's shoulder. Kukulin ran off. Fergus walked back and told everyone that Kukulin had yielded. He ran off. They yelled at Fergus to go after him. What are you doing? He laughs at them. Nope, that's dangerous, and I did exactly what I said I would. I'm not fighting him until my turn comes up again. Despite Kukulin yielding here, though, Kukulin was right back there the next day, waiting for the next person to kill at the ford. Far away, there was another who had gone through the same training as Kukulin. A young man just a few years older, and he had been with Kukulin during his time learning under Skullhawk. They were considered foster brothers. Maeve sent word to him. Reclining after a battle... Ferdia, remember Ferdia from last episode, refused outright. He hadn't seen Kukulin for a few years, but they had been as close as brothers while learning from Skullhawk. They are considered brothers. Foster brothers, actually. No, he absolutely wouldn't do this. He loved Kukulin. Maeve said, okay, and hired many bards, singers, satirists, and others. These would travel the world, going before Ferdia, singing of his cowardice. There wouldn't be a place in the known world for him to lay his head that didn't know how scared he had been. Sure, Verdia, you're free to say no, but just know that there are consequences. You have all this training and are a great warrior in your own right. It would be a shame for your skills to go to waste and for history to remember you as nothing. He relented and heard what they had to say, and they offered him the same deal that they were offering most of the warriors that fought Kukulin. Land, riches, and the hand of their daughter, Finnabar, in marriage. He ultimately decided to refuse, but Maeve said, oh, yeah. Gukulin said you'd say that. He said that he always was the better one. He's been telling everyone of your cowardice when you fought in Scotland. How much he had to rescue you. Turns out he was right. Oh well, at least the bards and singers won't be lying when they speak of your cowardice. He was enraged, and I would imagine at least someone falsely corroborated Maeve's story, because he legitimately believed Gukulin was bragging. He gritted his teeth and said that he would do it. He would fight Gukulin. 
Fergus learned of this and wrote it to tell Cucullin the news of who was fighting him, and the young man was shocked. He knew of Ferdia's training, but worst of all, he loved him like a brother. This was heavy news. There was a somber silence in both camps. Both men were angry with the other. Ferdia that Cucullin would call him a coward and spread lies about him, and Cucullin that Ferdia would throw their friendship away for what? Wealth and a daughter that had been promised to 50 other dead men? Cucullin, almost certain that this could be the last night of his life, spent it with his wife. The next day, Ferdia made it to the fort early and saw Cucullin riding up. I'm going to miss you, Cucullin said when he got there, but this wasn't out of boastfulness or anything like that. It was legitimate sorrow. Ferdia flung insults at him, but Cucullin only tried to reason with him. He was being duped. Finnebar was a snare. Don't end their friendship over this. Ferdia sneered. Whatever the reason, their friendship was done now. They were here, and he would deliver Cucullin to his first and last defeat. Cucullin sighed. Very well. What weapons will you choose? They fought that day with spears, and it's almost as if it was choreographed. Both were so skillful that neither was able to draw blood from the other. Or maybe they didn't wish to. I would imagine it felt like old times, traveling around Great Britain, fighting together. This time with one glaring exception. But regardless, Cucullin likely knew every one of Ferdia's movements before he did it, and Ferdia Cucullin's. At the end of the day, they were laughing, and walked from the battlefield with their arms around each other's shoulders, momentarily forgetting why they were there. The next day, they decided to fight with a bit more of a deadly spear. They both had their honor, and there was an army watching. They were rougher that day, each more torn up, but even though their cuts and stab wounds streamed blood, it wasn't anything too serious. I mean, me, I would probably be dying, but for two legendary and highly trained warriors, it's just a flesh wound. They helped each other off the battlefield, and then they retired to their respective camps. Seeing someone approach that night, Kukulin, who was being tended to by his healers, didn't have time to stand up before a servant came with food from Ferdia. Kukulin smiled and took the food. He sent a healer to Ferdia's camp. The next day, when they fought, things got more brutal. Again, that night, they sent provisions to the other person. The next day, they continued and took their broadswords. And again, it ended without a death. Though one story said that they hacked pieces the size of babies' heads off each other, which is an odd, yet effectively gross description. They were bloody and pained and weary. The next day, Kukulin, still exhausted, rode with his charioteer leg to the battlefield. His charioteer was carrying the guy Bolga, as he always did, the barbed spear that he had taken from the chieftain Efe when he beat her back when he was with Skullhawk. He looked out and expected to see the weary Ferdia, but he saw his opponent and friend performing feats like it was nothing. He thought, for the first time in his life, that he might really die here. He turned to Leg, his charioteer, and said that if it looked like Ukulin would fall, he needed to scream insults at him to make him angry. It would save his life. Like the charioteer nodded. That day, during the fight, Kukulin mustered and met Ferdia blow for blow, but the slightly older man's extra experience and the fact that he didn't just spend months fighting an army by himself worked in his favor. When Kukulin tried to spring over Ferdia's shield to attack, the man kicked him down into the ford. Standing over him, he was about to slice downward when he heard something. It was Leg, the charioteer, screaming insults at Kukulin saying things like Ferdia shook him so badly, it was like a loving mother striking her baby. Which, loving mother? There were a lot more of them, but Ferdia laughed it off and looked down at Kukulin. 
The young man was shaking, which, with death imminent, wasn't that surprising, but no, this was different. It was... Uh-oh. Ferdy had jumped back from Cucullin as the latter's knees twisted backwards, hair spiked out, fire flew from his mouth, and he twisted into his monstrous form. He was entering his battle fury, his warp spasm. He contorted and grew into a giant before Ferdia, and attacked. Ferdia dodged the first attack, parried the second, and then they were off. The beast that was Cucullin struck down at him and, when he had a moment, picked up his sword and continued. Ferdia, though, was surprised not by the transformation, but by the fact that he was keeping up with it. He wasn't just holding his own, he was beating Cucullin in his monstrous form. Drenched in sweat and also streaming blood, Ferdia fought Cucullin, dealing the monster devastating blows where he could. Soon, the monster began to change back. It was only a little shrinking at first, but soon his hair returned to normal, and then some of his skin turned back. Then, it was just a weary young man, back from his warp spasm. He wasn't angry anymore. He was just trying to stay alive. Ferdia saw an opening and buried his sword into Cucullin's chest below his shoulder. Cucullin dropped to the water below, and it turned red with his blood. As he dropped, he flung a small javelin upwards with his wrist, and it caught Ferdia in the shoulder. Ferdia was stunned, but pulled the javelin out just as Cucullin was yelling to Leg to throw him the guy Bolga. The charioteer flung the weapon into the ford, and it splashed, right underneath Ferdia. Cucullin's opponent didn't waste any time, and brought his sword up to finally kill the young man. Leg, the charioteer, watched in horror from the banks as Ferdia raised his sword over his head but paused. He then said something, and coughed. Blood then started pouring from Ferdia's mouth, and Leg looked below him. Cucullin, at the last moment, had found an opening. He had hooked the guy Bolga with his toe, remember that it was underneath Ferdia, and forced it upwards into his friend with only his foot. That's enough now. I'll die of that, his friend said, as he could feel the barbed spear tearing inside his torso. That's when the charioteer saw him cough up the blood. Cucullin rushed up and caught his friend as he fell. He took Ferdia in his arms, armor and all. His friend died as he carried him from the ford. Cucullin kept carrying him, though. He stumbled and carried him north of the ford to a clearing. There he laid him down and laid next to him, just like they had done when they camped out on all those expeditions for Skullhawk. Looking up at the clouds, Cucullin said goodbye to his friend and foster brother before sleep took him. Gukulin struggled to his feet, and Leg carried him off in the chariot when he awoke. To Gukulin, everything had been like a game before fighting Ferdia. Now, he was too wounded to go on. He had won, but he needed to heal. They drove off in a chariot, and the armies advanced further into Ulster. So, I just want to say something. This whole Ferdia thing, I helped out the narrative a bit by introducing him back with Skullhawk, where I think he should have been introduced. He was actually not mentioned at all in the Skullhawk portions. They just sort of retcon a best friend for Kukulin to tragically fight to the death. The whole time during the fight, they are recounting the good times at Skullhawks when, no, as far as it was told in the legends, never actually happened. Back to the story. There were rumors that the men of Ulster had recovered from their birth pangs. This was confirmed when McGroth... Maeve's messenger who had been keeping an eye on the Ulstermen ran back to the camp in panic. He was followed closely by a very large and very angry Ulsterman on a chariot, who jumped off and began massacring the unsuspecting warriors. He killed many, 
but he ended up retreating, holding his entrails. He meets up with Cullen and is somehow healed, though I don't know how you can heal someone with ancient world medicine who's holding their organs. Apparently he had gotten too close to Maeve and Aaliyah and the others, and one of his worst wounds actually came from Queen Maeve herself. The men of Ulster rose from their pangs and joined the fight. One man, named Rokad, puts an army together. He marches out, and when Maeve learns of this, she starts to panic. She turns, once again, to her daughter. A messenger rides up to Rokad one day, saying the daughter of Maeve would like a word. Known for her beauty, he consents to see her, but as soon as he was outside the safety of his camp with only a small guard, he was captured. When he gets to where he's going, the bag is pulled off his head, and he was sitting in front of Maeve and Finnebar. Maeve did the same old deal, and asked him to defect with his army in exchange for a lot of stuff and marriage to Finnebar. He looked at Finnebar. She's beautiful, he agreed, and they spent the night together. Finnebar, as it turns out, was happy with this. She had always admired Rokad, and if she had to end up with somebody because of her mother's underhanded dealings, she was happy it was him. He rode off to announce the news the next day, and he met with several kings, who also had been promised to Finnebar. Then he met with even more people with whom Maeve had made the deal, and they quickly realized that they've all been duped. They marched against Maeve, who didn't even wait before putting an army together. It was a stalemate, but 700 men died. Finnebar, the daughter of Maeve, was disgusted and ashamed that so many men died for her, and the deception of marriage to her. She collapsed on the way back, and it said she died of shame. Gukulin had gone back to Evan Maka to heal, and it said that there was hardly a spot in his body that wasn't scratched or torn up after the fight with Ferdia. Maeve had to be rethinking things a bit here. This wasn't just a quick raid into a land with no warriors. She had lost hundreds already. She now had to fight against an army. She had no idea where the bull was, and her daughter and several of her sons and foster sons were dead. She ran out of her tent when she heard a noise. Running down from the hills, Mikroth told them that there was a fog covering the plains. Fergus laughed. It wasn't a fog. The men of Ulster had risen from their pangs. They had marched en masse right through the forest and drove all the wild animals out into the plains and they kicked up dust and made it look like a fog. They watched as the companies arrived one by one to the plain, led by King Rohur of Ulster. The companies each numbered in the thousands. They had just recovered from months of labor pangs to find their friends and families killed, and their land raided. Now they could do something about it. The battle commenced, and everyone was there. Maeve led from the front and killed many Ulstermen. Rohur fought in the fray, and Fergus sat back at camp. Remember that he didn't have his sword. Aaliyah saw this and, finally, gave it back to him. And all that reluctance to fight, that was just to avoid fighting Kukulin, his foster son. He didn't have any qualms with killing many, many Ulstermen, which he did. He had one in particular in mind, though. Kukur, the man who had stolen his kingdom when he was seven, and whose warriors had killed his son, was on the battlefield in front of him. Fergus was finally going to finish this. He rushed towards the man, and King Kukur blocked him with the shield. They fought, and even though Kruhur was a skilled warrior, Fergus was Fergus, and eventually he raised his sword up to strike the killing blow, but felt something on his arm. Cormac, the eldest son of Kruhur, held Fergus's arm. As a very quick aside, he also followed Fergus in exile after the whole Deirdre thing a couple episodes back. This is another one where Fergus had been his foster father and helped raise and train him, and he apparently preferred exile in a foreign kingdom to heir to the throne, so he went with Fergus. Now, though, you couldn't stand by and watch Fergus kill his father. Not like this. It wasn't honorable. The Ulstermen were just defending their land from the treacherous Maeve. Fergus looked at Cormac, his foster son, 
who had been so loyal that he had given up everything to follow him. He, like Kukulin, was basically a son to Fergus. Fergus lowered his arm and let King Corpura go. In his rage, he apparently took off the tops of some nearby hills in just one sword swipe, because sure. Kukulin was watching from a nearby hill, still very much recovering, when he saw all of this happen. He saw Fergus go on fighting, and then he couldn't see Fergus anymore. He knew that Fergus had fallen. He called to Leg, his charioteer, who, after much persuading, got his chariot together and drove him to the fight. He was jostled and attacked, and Kukulin, too, dropped in the fray. If you were looking at this from a distance, you would have seen a very bloody and wounded young man take one hit and go down, and you probably wouldn't have thought anything of it, until the monster exploded out of the battle. Kukulin had gone into his warp spasm, and, no longer being able to fit in his chariot, slung the thing over his shoulder and went in search of Fergus. He called out and found Fergus, wounded but still alive and fighting. Even in his monster form, Kukulin was still streaming blood. Kukulin hobbled to him and helped him up. He asked Fergus to yield, to take his men and leave. Fergus smiled. He remembered the promise that he had made Kukulin when Maeve had tricked him into combat. He yielded to his foster son, and he and his 3,000 warriors immediately left the battle. Back at camp, Maeve was standing with Elil, just having come from battle, and she felt something. She said she had to go quickly. She had to take care of something. This story starts to wrap up in a way that kind of makes me bury my face in my hands for the subtext. But Maeve had to leave because her period is starting. Now, Elil said, we're in the middle of a battle, like the big final battle at the end. She said she couldn't exactly help it. She'll be right back. She went to a place and dug some holes in a place that's named, very subtly, Maeve's Foul Place. She squatted over the hole, relieving herself, when she felt the scrape of a point on her back. She looked over her shoulder and sighed. Of course it was him. Kukulin had limped from the battle and snuck behind the enemy camp. He was still torn up and bleeding, but with the sword to her back, there wasn't much she could do. Spare me, she said. I could kill you, and it would only be right, he said, but he put his sword away. He said he wasn't a killer of women. That being said, this war was over. She understood, and went with Kukulin's sword at her neck to tell Alil the news. Since Kukulin didn't trust the woman who had pledged her daughter to marry over 100 men, many of which at the same time, he stayed with her as she left Ulster to make sure that she kept her promise. As soon as he left them, I can imagine he felt, for the first time in months, like he could exhale. Here's where Kukulin exits our story. So what about the early death so many people were worried about? Yeah, apparently it isn't supposed to be this early. Still, though, the seeds of his destruction were planted when he went up against Maeve, and she will have her revenge. And we'll go over it in the future on the podcast. If you're wondering about that anti-climax of the story, well, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Regardless, Kukulin's work was done. It had been an incredibly difficult task, but he stepped to a whole army and protected his people. He hobbled back home a hero to finally rest. Maeve was in a sour mood, though. They had lost so much, and now that they were back in Connacht, she would lose even more. That's right. That friendly competition that started as pillow talk between husband and wife and morphed into a war that included every kingdom in Ireland? That wasn't off. Elil gloated. He had won. He was richer. 
But as he was gloating, they turned a corner and saw the fields. There, on the other side of the fence from the white bull, was an enormous, beautiful brown bull. It was him, the brown bull of Ulster. But how had they done this? Apparently one of the several raiding parties, after they heard of the defeat of Maeve and Ilil, started making their way back out of Ulster when they saw it. It was surrounded by its herd in a field. They captured it and secretly took it as fast as they could out of Ulster. Now, here it was. Maeve was beaming. Despite all the personal loss, she wouldn't come away completely ashamed. I guess. Honestly, it's hard to relate to her. I mean, she lost children because of this ridiculous war. But I digress. She orders the bulls to be put in the same pen, and for one man to judge them. The bulls were facing each other, and the man was in the middle, diligently inspecting each one. He was so focused that he didn't quite notice the bulls catch sight of one another. When they snorted, he made note of the sound, and admired the hooves as they stomped on the ground. He smiled, folded his hands, and turned to Maeve, Aleel, and the crowd that had gathered to hear the verdict of this stupid, stupid competition. He cleared his throat before saying, Well, in my opinion, the winner is... But that's all he said. The group watched in horror as the bulls charged at one another. Locking horns, they very much ignored the man they crushed in between them. Fergus jumped the fence and began swatting at the bulls to stop, but for his safety he had to jump back across the fence, and they separated and started circling. Fergus was cursing at them, saying that so many people have died for you to be here, and now you're fighting? They kept fighting, though, into the night. Sometime in the night, amidst the bellowing and the grunts, they heard wood shatter. Fergus and a team of people watched on. They weren't about to try to stop them. They couldn't. The pair, now free of their enclosure, fought and fought as they went all over Ireland. Finally, one morning, Fergus spotted the brown bull limping by itself, not pursuing or being pursued by the white bull. A few people broke off and found the gored remains of the white bull. The brown bull had done it. He had killed his opponent, but he was wounded too. Fergus followed the trail of blood of the very injured brown bull, along with the organs of the white bull that had been pinned to its horns. He was dropping him as he went. He saw the bull staggering on a broken leg, dazed from the gaping wound in its head. Still, it pressed on. The brown bull of Ulster had achieved its victory over the white bull of Connacht. Though it was only a Pyrrhic victory, the brown bull was dying as well. Still, he followed it. Finally, one evening, he saw it lay down in the light of the setting sun. He came over to it and stroked the bull as it died. He laid his hand on the bloody, torn creature as it breathed its last. He looked up and recognized the area. They were at the border of the kingdom of Ulster. The bull was just trying to get back here before it died, back to its own land. It was home. Fergus walked back from the bull, back to Reconnacht. There was a tenuous peace between Ulster and Connacht, which would last for seven years, though Maeve and Aleel harbored deep resentment against the boy that had held back their army. And, of course, they held resentment at each other, because they were, once again, unavoidably equal in their wealth. King Krahur of Ulster fell into a deep depression, because even though he had technically won the war, his lands had been raided, many people killed or captured, and they had lost their prize bull. Cullen was weary and torn up, he was a hero, but he ended up having to kill his best friend. Fergus walked back to his camp as night fell. Thinking back, seeing the destruction wrought on the people he used to rule by the kingdom in which he was living, for a prize that left everyone poorer, I can imagine Fergus shaking his head at the destruction 
and sheer ridiculousness of war. Or that's just my 21st century commentary. I feel like that's a possible message of the story, and I'll go into that. Fergus was a willing and enthusiastic participant in the war when fighting everyone but Cucullin. So this is a complicated story with a lot of things to say. I don't know that I'll be able to do it justice, but I've read several interpretations of the story, so here goes. You probably noticed, but this story had some really funny, bizarre aspects. So with the other stories I've done on the podcast, the tellings are deadly serious. Hercules, Theseus, Yvain, Aladdin very few stories of the humor that this one does. In many stories, I point out the more bizarre aspects, and I'm a little more playful with them. For this one, I actually played it a bit more straight than I usually do. I left out a lot of ridiculous fights, and I'll talk about that later, but from what I've read, we are not supposed to see this as the ancient Irish culture taking these things seriously. These things are apparently supposed to be funny. I've also read that in some places this extends not just to Cucullin killing people with apples and shaking the poop from them, but some of the more foundational aspects of the story. Okay, think about it. It's a full-scale war that starts because the wife wants to own more stuff than her husband. We already have this 20th century TV trope of the hempecked husband, but nowhere is even considered in Maeve's mind that she could just lose. She has to have this bull. Then the war started because people got drunk and blabbed. I've done research, and yes, wealth in ancient Ireland was largely tied to livestock but no interpretation indicates that this would be a just war over one bull, especially given the thousands of people that died. Especially not to win an argument between a husband and a wife. Combine that with all the ridiculousness surrounding Ku Cullen's fights, minus the fight with Fridia. I think we actually are supposed to see that as tragic. Tragic, yet absurd because it's two best friends fighting over a war started because of a bull. Add that to the non-climax at the end, where the wounded Ku Cullen sneaks up on Maeve while she's relieving herself, and extend that even to the bulls. The whole reason to the fight, killing each other at the end. I've read interpretations of this where they argue, and argue well, that the central premise of the toying, what the story's called, is the pointlessness and the absurdity of war. We should also talk about the attitudes towards women in the story. It's complex and difficult to parse out. On one hand, we have the super powerful and smart Maeve, who's clearly the leader of the conic side of things. She's above her husband and all the other men, and she keeps everyone in line very skillfully. But, you know, as I said above, that the fundamental premise of the war could be ridiculous. And all her power is contrasted with her constant use of her own daughter as a commodity. And let's not forget, she loses the war because her period starts. And people like Fergus and Aleel say, well, this is what happens when you follow a woman. It's not a good message. And then Kukulin spares her because she's a woman, kind of putting her below the hundreds of men he had absolutely no problem killing. The attitude towards women is sadly representative of a lot of stories we've talked about on here, and, it seems, of ancient medieval literature in general. Oddly enough, though, it's not representative of ancient Irish society. Compared to Roman, Greek, and other contemporary societies, women in Gaelic Ireland have much more freedom, protection under law, and status. They could be teachers, lawgivers, healers, some sorts of sage druids, and even rulers. The Romans, when they came in contact with the Celts, were astounded by the equality of men and women. Setting aside Maeve for a moment, just look at Skullhawk and Afe, the teachers and leaders mentioned last episode. They were authority figures and fairly powerful and respected. Kurhura is on the throne, largely because of his mother's intelligence and political skill. And even looking back at Maeve, 
despite Dianin, she's the authority when it comes to the army of Connacht. She is at least equal to her husband and really skillfully handles Fergus and the other warriors. And she also really skillfully handles herself on the battlefield as well. She's a decent warrior. I, personally, would be interested in what effect the medieval monks had on the manuscripts, because I think that might be an intervening factor. One interpretation put it this way. This story focuses not so much on Maeve's good deeds, but on the perceived weaknesses of womanhood. She's depicted as headstrong, ambitious, promiscuous, greedy, jealous, and vengeful. Everything a good Christian woman should not be. As a quick aside, I personally love the character of Maeve. I thought she was human and interesting, and the same goes with Fergus, Aleel, and Kruhur at times. Basically everyone but Kukulin, who is apparently infallible and the greatest and best at everything all the time. So, why is this story important? Well, as far as I can tell, it really catapulted to importance in the 19th and 20th centuries, around the time of the Irish independence movement. Then, it was recognized as sort of a national Irish epic, something akin to the Aeneid for the Romans. It wasn't English or anything like that. It was a story from Ireland's ancient past, from an Irish oral tradition before being written down in Irish. Stories from the Toyn have been adapted into plays and poems, and, according to a few listeners, they're still well known in Ireland to this day. Okay, lastly, I left a lot of things out. So, most summary just mentioned the pillow talk, the single combat, the fight with Ferdia, the last battle, and the death of the bulls. These are the big points, and I wanted to go a little more in depth. That being said, I had to leave a lot out. The single combat went a long time, with each combatant, every one of which had names, finding clever ways to die. That being said, while they were funny, it would have added another 20 minutes onto this episode, and that would have just been me describing the ways Kukulin killed people, which, while they're interesting and bizarre, it doesn't really add much from a storytelling perspective. It's always a balance between including too much detail and leaving too much out. If you're interested in learning more about this, I can't recommend Thomas Kinsella's translation of the toy highly enough. It was one of my main sources for all of this, and it's very, very good. I'll link it again in the show notes. Next week, even though it's coming in after Valentine's Day here in the States, I'll be telling the story of Cupid and Psyche from Greek mythology. You'll see what happens when Cupid, he's not a baby in this one, just FYI, scratches himself with one of his own arrows. I want to say a huge thank you to Kyle, Rayan, John F., Sean, Serafina, Jasmine H., Nathan, Abigail, Jessica, Benjamin, Paul, Nika, Alan, Travis, Toby, Cookie, Lion, Jillian, Anne-Marie, Julie, Hannibal, Jasmine B., Carissa, Tara, Jennifer, Naeli, Francis, Hannah, Cody, Mercury, Rose, Eli, Lauren, Kevin, and Matthew for becoming members on the website in January 2016, and also Dan, someone I missed for December 2015. Sorry, Dan. Really, it is such an incredible help and encouragement, and I can't thank you enough. And yeah, there's a membership thing on the site. For $5, less than the price of 750 ladybugs in an egg drop soup container, you can help support the show and get extra episodes that will definitely not crawl all over you if they get loose from that flimsy plastic container. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. This week, it's the Tokoloshi from South African Folklore. Special thanks to Emil for the suggestion and all the research on this creature. He's a mischievous little imp who pretty violently assaults people in their sleep. In some versions, he's small and hairy, and he ranges from a little boogeyman to scare children to a violent and evil creature who will attack you in your sleep, bite off your toes, or kill you. Or maybe all three. 
In other versions, he's called on by malevolent people who want to do harm to the victim. And he can turn invisible by drinking the super rare substance known as water. In some stories, these creatures are created by witch doctors, and they can only really be expelled by a witch doctor. The creation is extremely gross. A witch doctor will remove the eyes and tongue from a fresh corpse, and then thrust a hot poker into it. The body will shrink down to the size of a dwarf and come to life. Apparently, you can protect yourself from this creature by putting blocks underneath the legs of your bed. But that will only really protect you in your bed, and he can still cause havoc all around you. So, looking into this, there are many, many reports of this creature as recently as the last decade. Some of them are bizarre, and obviously jokes, but others are more serious and scary, where people mistake strangers or children to be this creature, and possibly attack them. Though instances like that are absolutely sad, I have a hard time seeing how this mistake could be made. I mean, this creature is either an eyeless zombie, or in the other version like I talked about above, a small, very well-endowed, hairy little man with a single buttock. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. Links to the music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.